Blog Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Can somebody please tell me what's going on? Because there is so much happening right now in America, and we need to understand exactly what's going on for our survival, for our safety, and especially as black folks in America, for our future. Once again, I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. And before I get started, as I do with every show, I always pause and thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for just allowing me to host this show and to have this platform, because truly... I counted a blessing just to be able to reach out each and every week uh, and host the show and have uh, all of you join us each week uh, online, as well as in uh, at the Ivy City Smokehouse when we're broadcasting live there. At Ivy City tonight, it's live from North Carolina, Durham, North Carolina. So we are here in North Carolina. Uh, they had their Democratic um, convention on Saturday here in town. And uh, if some of you uh, follow me on Instagram, I met with the uh, first elected African-American sheriff of Durham County on Saturday, uh, uh, Sheriff Clarence Burkhead. And I hope he's listening tonight. We were going to have him tonight, but uh, his schedule wouldn't allow him to come out. But we certainly want to thank him for hosting us and allowing us to come in and uh, take time to chat with us and talk about what's going on. He's going to be a regular guest on our show because there's a lot of stuff going on in North Carolina now that we have eight elected African-Americans as sheriff in the state of North Carolina. Actually, there's nine, uh, but first time in, in, 
in the state's history, the eight of them were elected at one time, and all of them were elected for the first time in uh, in the counties that they represent. So uh, he's going to be a regular on the show. He's also going to be a contributor to our magazine, Black Politics Today magazine. So I'm excited about that and excited about what he's doing. But certainly for those of you who are here in North Carolina listening live, you need to pay attention because they're trying to strip the sheriffs of their power simply because they're black. And let's be real about it. So, uh, of course, uh, I just thank God that, uh, you know, things that are going on and things that are happening are happening such that we can be able to do what we have to do. And uh, certainly if it, you know, whatever it entails us doing, we need to make sure we do it. Uh, because socially, economically, and politically, there's always going to be some impact for us in our community. And we have to make sure that we are well aware or prevalent of the attacks that we have to deal with because now people feel free to say and do what they want to do before they at least do it undercover and sneak up on you and then you can slap them behind now they're in the open with it and they don't really care you know quite frankly what i really want to say but uh, i'm gonna say they don't care so as we look into the social economic and political impact of public policy in our community as well as the social and economic policies that may go unnoticed we have to be vigilant in what we do and how we do it to make sure that we take control of our state legislatures with the census. So please respond to the census because you don't understand how powerful that tool is when you do not respond to it. It's very powerful and it will make or break our counties, our communities, and our cities uh, across the country, especially when it comes to how we put together our representation for Congress, for the state legislatures, and especially our communities of color, how we get our education dollars, how we get our social services dollars, how we make sure that, you know, polling places are in place. All those things are vital to us in our community. So I need you to make sure that you stay vigilant and stay abreast of what's going on. And of course, listen to us here at blackpoliticstoday.com, blogtalkradio slash dot uh, com at Black Politics Today, and of course, read the magazine, and we'll certainly try to help and present all that information to you um, each and every week, as well as every other month through our magazine, and of course, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So if you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. So tonight, tonight, we're going to look at uh, uh, a couple of things that have occurred here over the weekend and, and look at uh, the threats that are coming out of the White House and what's happening there. So the closing of the southern border, what that's going to mean to us, as well as uh, the complete release of the Mueller report and then the dismantling of the ACA and allowing and using the attorney general to actually do that. And then we're going to also talk about the tragic deaths of uh, Renaya. Uh, right in South Carolina, and also rapper and activist uh, Nipsey uh, Hussle. Uh, so getting right into it, uh, I had a long monologue tonight, but I'm going to uh, just go with what I've just said, and, and we're going to get into it because I had a lot to say about that ACA and the southern border, but uh, we're going to bypass that and get right into it. My guest tonight is no stranger to black politics today. Although it's her first time as a guest on the show, she's an actress, an uh, Instagrammer, a mother of two, and a Hollywood insider. 
Her credits include Trauma, Army Wives, The Rookie, First Wives Club, just to name a few. And she has a recurring, recurring roles on Empire and This Is Us, where her husband, Sterling K. Brown, plays Randall. Uh, so welcome to the show there, uh, Ryan Michelle Bethay, uh, my family, my friend, and my cousin. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining us tonight. So talk to us about Hollywood, because I was watching uh, the what, MSNBC. They had... Um, uh, um, uh, uh, Rain, um, Ryan, uh, Rob Ryan on, and they had a couple other folks on, and he made a very good point. He said, you know, po- politicians come to Hollywood, and they're the ones asking for favors. Hollywood can go to the politicians asking for favors, but yet the conservatives want you to believe that, you know, Hollywood is in the tank for liberals and things of that nature. But really, as Rob Ryman said, you know, we just want people to live healthy and, you know, fabulous lives, Mm -hmm. you know, biblically, you know, speaking, you know, you want to be able to live life, live it life abundantly. Uh, So talk to me about Hollywood and and just how politicians come to you all the time looking for, but, you know, what's the impact? What's going to be the impact this time around? Well, I think what people have to understand about Hollywood is that, you know, it's very with the exception of what 1% of us, it's very working class. People work very, very hard and very, very, very long hours. So you probably have the greatest concentration of people who still have that hustle mentality, that American dream mentality, and we are still very much a union town. So it's so interesting to me because I'm like, wow, but, you know, Hollywood is very blue collar in many, many ways. I, I'm on a set. At any point in time, there's an electrician and all the people who work in the electric right. department. And they've got these big things that they're moving and they're trying to keep everybody from getting electrocuted. But we got to light this thing and make it look like daytime. And then there's the sound guy and they've got a whole cart with things and they've trained and they're trying to make sure the sound is right. And there's a guy holding a microphone over his head as steady as he can. And then there's enough, I mean, it's just, it, and then there's somebody making food. And that's different from the caterer because the right. caterer and crafty are two different things. There's somebody <laughs> in a truck chopping up. I mean, so it's, it's, it, is a, it is a self-sustaining machine in the sense that it is just a bunch of makeup artists. I mean, we are IATSE people and I, and we are all very proud to be union and we understand that there has to be um, a vital and strong organization of people who fight for the rights of workers that make sure it's safe and people get health care. And that's what uh, um, one of the uh, other guests was saying. I can't remember her name and can't recall her name, but she was saying, you know, Hollywood is made up of small business owners mm-hmm. who, and, and some who are well off and wealthy who if you were the, you know, uh, maybe a Tom Cruise or something like that, you're benefiting from the the, the Trump tax cuts and everything else. You know, you, you're getting this. But she said, like you said, for the most part, they're small business owners. They're, you know, mm-hmm. people doing the hustle of what makes life go around and what makes them be able to do what they're doing to survive and to mm-hmm. take care of their families and do the things they're doing. I know I've seen some tweets and, and comments you make because, yeah, I mean, you know, 2017, 2018, you were adamant about this Trump man and, and what was going on and, and how it's going. What are you looking for for 2020? Because 2018 was the year of the black woman. 
and the black woman came out, she came out strong. 2020 is one of those years where everyone is looking, hoping and praying and saying that, you know, black women are going to lead, you know, lead the race and lead what's going on and, and come out there and push it forward. So what are you looking for and, and how are you, uh, how are you expecting the results of 2020 to be? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I never, um, I, I was never looking for Robert Mueller to come save us. I was right, never looking right. for the Mueller report. I was like, right. what you, come on, y'all. <laughs> exactly. Right. And I think that what's important is for black women to, A, be very mindful of self-care so that we can save ourselves first. I feel like if every black woman in this country decided, I'm going to save myself Oh, the the whole thing would change, right? You know, just by virtue of every black woman saying, you know what, I'm and like, and I do think we have to think very, very locally. I think we have to think very, very locally. We have to think about our communities, like block by block, family by family. And I think that to me is a little is is probably, ironically enough, I know everybody has this idea of like this big, huge groundswell, and we're going to put this, whoever this person is in office, it's going to be 2020, and that's the year, and I, I, I'm not convinced of that. What I'm convinced of is the day-to-day, go vote for your local dog catcher, because you can do that today, because whoever the dog catcher is is now sitting on a council, yeah. and now he has a vote, All Right. and that, you know, so I just think that we don't have to wait for 2020. You can vote today. In California, I promise you, we have so many elections. I'm like, it's Tuesday. Will we vote? No, now. Right. <laughs> you know, but Trust vote, me, I know, you when, know when I worked for Willie Brown, it was every year I was in some part of the state running an election or running a campaign because it was, it, it was just every year there was a race going on. If it wasn't local mayor, you know, city council, uh, it was the state assembly, the Senate, the governors, it was the presidential election. It was every year. I mean, literally for five straight years, I did not stop. I didn't, I didn't sleep in my bed much at all. I was in in some other part of the state, uh, working and working hard. Um, I'm going to bring on the, uh, on the, uh, show with us. Um, I have guests, uh, with me, Dr. Keisha, uh, Sarai, Sir. Sarah Bow. Sarah Bow. She is director of content and programming at uh, Reading is Fundamental. She's the past chair of the American Education Research Association, a graduate student council, or excuse me, Research Association Graduate Student Council. And she's the first African American to graduate with masters from Beijing Normal University. Okay. And the first African American to graduate with a PhD from the University of Hong Kong. So I want to welcome her to the show as well. Can we uh, yes, please. Let's give her a round of applause as well. Hey, everyone. Uh, Thank you. Show, Keisha, as well as uh, my other guest who's always on the show with us, Rebecca Carruthers. She's the principal of Carruthers Consulting, uh, and she is a progressive uh, political strategist in the Washington, D.C. area. She's uh, run campaigns across the, the country as well. And I believe I have my guest, um, uh, my national guest, uh, Greg Stewart, on the line as well. Are you all on the line? I am on the line. I'm here. This is Keisha. Great. Great. I'm here. So, Thanks, Keisha. Kelly, for having us tonight. Thank this you. is Greg. Thank yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's an honor. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Um, 
Um, actually, Rebecca, let me go to you first because I haven't gotten into the the the, uh, the Hollywood, uh, or excuse me, I haven't gotten into Nipsey yet. So I want to um, have you piggyback on what um, Ryan was saying in terms of the Mueller report not being the savior for for uh, progressive, but really looking to the local elections and the local sector to really put together uh, a foundation for what progressives want in 2020. Well, I think what we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of the inside the beltway, a lot of the Washington, D.C. insiders who've made this, the assumption that once the Mueller report comes out, that all of a sudden Trump and his ilk was going to um, be run out of town in D.C. That simply isn't the case. And to what Ryan was speaking about earlier, we have to make sure we're still doing the fundamentals, making sure that we're registering people to vote, making sure in states like Florida, where we have 1.4 million returning citizens who now have been given um, their right to vote, um, their right to vote being restored, we have to make sure we're fighting for them to keep their right to vote and then make sure that they exercise their right to vote. So we really have to make sure that we're not being distracted by what's going on with the Department of Justice. We can't be distracted with um, potentially the United States House subpoena, um, doing a subpoena against Barr and requiring him to come on the Hill and bring the Mueller report and release it um, you know, to the media and to the public. But we have to focus on those things that we know we have to do, which is making sure that our people show up to vote um, when election time comes around. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that um, in, for, you know, many uh, Democrats, the, the Mueller report was the thing that was going to allow them to either investigate for impeachment or be able to come out strong against what was happening. And with Barr taking the lead now, because Mueller, you know, as, as they say, you know, did not do his job as he was charged to do, which was to <laughs> come up with a decision um, it puts progressives in a, in a tight position of how they move forward because we know how Democrats act on the Hill. They're very skittish about going a little bit, going where they should go and doing what they should do because they're afraid of what the electorate's going to respond to because out in the Midwest and the South, the Democrats are skittish. They, you know, they, they don't like hardcore, but yet and still they said they like Trump to be hardcore, but when Democrats become hardcore, they don't like it. It's, it's like a, a oxymoron for them. Well, Democrats have to stop trying to please everybody. Democrats are going after those soft Republicans or um, those Trump supporters who now have regrets. Democrats don't need to go after those folks. Instead, Democrats need to be focusing on their base. They need to be focusing on black women, and they need to make sure that they're doing things that benefit their base. And that's not what the Democrats are doing right now. Instead, they're being distracted by, by basically just stupid stuff. But now to your point about um, Mueller, you know what? Mueller did do his job. His job wasn't to convict the president. His job was to present the facts as he discovered them. And then from there, it goes into the political process of whether or not the House is going to go ahead and do a vote on impeachment. Now, regardless of what the House does or doesn't do, we know this president is the worst president in American history. We know he is the most corrupt president in American history. Fine. But the issue is we still have thousands of families separated 
because of the border nonsense that Trump has done. Right. We still have programs like SNAP and Medicare that's now underfunded. Last week, we even had a threat of Special Olympics being defunded um, by um, this crazy guy in the White House. So we need to focus on those bread and butter issues and those things that we need to do to make sure that the least among us is taken care of instead of being caught up in all the distraction. Absolutely. And, and Ryan, it's interesting that California being the state, I mean, the the most diverse state in the, in, in the country that we have, um, how it seems like it's, always been like the last state on the on the ballot for the Mm -hmm. the determination Mm -hmm. of the electorate it's usually everything else is pretty much already decided and then super tuesday comes and Mm -hmm. california's included they're changing that now i know that uh, a number of years they've tried to move their election up and this year they moved it up even more i think this in february or or Mm -hmm. march uh of 2020 and uh, it's march 8th and now it's going to become sort of like that battleground now, where a lot of folks are going to come, Kamala being, you know, for a senator from there mm-hmm. and attorney general. But a lot of folks are like, like an Elizabeth Warren and like mm-hmm. in bed on things. What are people saying in L.A. in terms of, you know, where they're looking? Because I know with uh, Garcetti becoming mayor, they thought that he was going to jump in the race. But, mm-hmm. you know, he, he said he's going to stay there and do what mm-hmm. he's supposed to do um, and not jump too soon. Mm-hmm. But what's what's it looking like and what are people looking for? It's funny because, you know, I I love all people, but most non-black people come up to me and they go, I, do you like Kamala? What do you feel like Kamala? Do you like Kamala? What do you feel like Kamala? <laughs> and it's, 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 it's <laughs> when, when Precious came out. Have you seen Precious? What do you think about Precious? Have you seen Precious? Oh, my God. <laughs> So, so I don't feel like I get a very good, uh, I have a very specific filter by what, by virtue of what I look like. And they all try to act like they love Kamala Harris right. out there. You know, I just really think oh, I just love what she stands for, you know, and I, I think, you know, listen, every Democrat I know says that they would vote for a can of paint. No matter, you no, know what I mean? Exactly. As long as it beats Donald Trump. As long as it beats Donald Trump. And I also think that there, you know, there's, there's, there's so many streams. Like we need to elect somebody who can, who can beat them. We need to do, you know, and I, we, why do we always have to fall in love with somebody? Why are there so many people running? And I have always said, I think the smartest thing the Democrats can do is have all these people run. Fan out. Fan out all over the country with all of these different people who look different, who have a very similar message, which is we should have health care in this country. What did she say? The fundamentals. Right. All of these people are now going to fan out and talk about fundamentals. And I just think that's really the smartest play. And whoever wins, fine. But I think the most important thing is like for the next two years to hammer home the message of the fundamentals. And I think that that's what's important. But like I said, I can't really get a true read on what people, because they just, all they want to talk about is Kamala. And then Corey. You right, know, right, right. Her, and like, but I also like Corey. You like Corey? I love Corey. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I get. <laughs> okay. So let me switch because I want to say I'm I'm going to come back to it with my national plan. But let me switch to the tragedy of 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 Nipsey Hussle and what he um, meant to young African Americans to to the new scene in L. A. and what he was doing there. Um, um, at the at his strip mall and, mm-hmm. and how he I mean hearing the story of him being able to come back by 
the strip mall and by the store Mm -hmm. where the guy took out the seats and didn't want to serve black folks. And now he's paying him rent, Mm -hmm. you know, it's powerful. And it's a powerful statement of what we need to do. It's one of those things that I have always, and, and Rebecca, and I think Greg can testify that in every show I do, I'm always talking about black legacy. I'm always talking about us empowering ourselves in a, a economic fashion to go back, buy up communities, buy houses, buy apartment buildings, do this thing so that we can better. I hate gentrification. And that's like, that is the thing that's on the cover of this, um, this month's issue of my magazine is gentrification. Um, and it's like, we don't need other people to come in our community to make our community better. No. Uh, we can do it ourselves mm-hmm. if we decide to do it. But talk to me about, you know, just the, the, the history that you have or just the knowledge that you have of ne- what Nipsey meant, what he did, and, and just how the impact is and what the loss is going to be now that uh, someone tragically just shot him down. The, the loss is, is incalculable. incalculable. It, it, it can't. It will be for decades to come. I think we will never, ever know what he would have been able to accomplish will only be able to dream of what he was in, what I mean what look at what he already did. I mean it and it was it was in the hood. Right. Like, we need to be clear, like he didn't just buy something hood adjacent. Like right. he went into the heart of his community and the space was is beautiful. I mean it's beautiful. And then he just had something there the night before. Right. So I just, and he didn't move out of the hood. He stayed there. Yeah. And, and he could have. Right. You know? And I, I just I the tragedy is is it's still really raw, and I just think about his wife and like you know he started off with the, 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 with prayer and I, we just have to hold that entire family in prayer really and in terms of the community you know maybe this is an opportunity I don't know if this will be the time but it's we it's so devastating to us as black people when we lose such a bright light you know it takes. You know, I think we all have a little bit of PTSD sometimes right. from it, and I don't know if that void is going to be filled. Um, but he really was an extraordinarily—he was an extraordinary human being, and I just think we just have to—we just have to pray for his wife and his children right now. Keisha, um, talk to us about your experience because uh, I understand you have uh, uh, an experience as well, and and you know a background where you can you know shed light on it. Sure. Um, Yeah, today is certainly uh, a heavy day, and I agree. Uh, We did lose an extraordinary light, and I sort of feel like this must be how previous generations felt when they lost great male leaders like Fred Hampton. Uh, I'd go so far as to say uh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, in the sense of you understand what it took to create uh, an individual like uh, Nipsey Hussle in the sense of he, like his background, you know, he came up, like we know in the Crenshaw area, he was a gang member from the rolling 60s. And there was a story, you know, uh, if you go through and you look at his, uh, you know, YouTube is full of his past interviews. Like he certainly left a written record. Uh, that stands to who he was. Like he left his own uh, history, oral history for us uh, mm-hmm. in the recordings. 
But he talks about how when he was nine years old, he needed school clothes. And he had a single mother, and there were, like, three kids. And he was like, she was already stressed out about bills. So I had to, you know, figure out how to get this money. And so he said, I went to every shop in the neighborhood and told them I need a job. And the only person that would give me a job was a shoe shine place. And so for two years, this young man developed a work ethic by shining shoes. But while he was shining shoes, he was sitting in the in the circle of wisdom with the girots, you know, the old school wisdom, and learning about investing and learning about the value of, you know, growing your money and if you do, you know, uh, acquiring property and things like that. So when he did start making money uh, within his rap albums, he didn't invest in material things. He invested in properties. And you know, he's been rapping right. over 10 years, you know? So right. you're talking about somebody like success found him. It's tragic, the, the timing of everything, you know, because he mm-hmm. just came right. off of his first Grammy nomination for his first, mm-hmm. you know, right. uh, major album. But exactly. he had been rapping for 10 years. But mm-hmm. while he was rapping, the money he was making, he was investing strategically. And as that money matured, like by the time we got to Victory Lap, he was already a multimillionaire thanks to his clothing line and just the foresight and how he set up his businesses. But how I came uh, to know of him was in my area of education. I am the director of programming and content, and we're putting together a grant uh, for a STEM-based literacy uh, program that's going to you know, happen across 60 schools in five states. And when I became aware of the work he was doing within STEM education, and I mean, let, let, let me not at all diminish the impact or the depth of what he did, because you have the STEM education program. He had revitalized community centers. He had a co-working space. He had invested in cryptocurrency. He had a restaurant, a barbershop. Like, this was a phenomenal man. That and and let's say at 33 years rap. old, this is what he was doing. Amen. At 33. You know? Like, he, no, he was doing it before 33. He exactly, got killed exactly. at 33. Yeah. He right. was doing his, this his, his, you know, he killed, he got down at 33, but this is something that he has been doing yes. for years and building up. Absolutely. So, Keith, so, let me ask you this. Um, how is this going to, or how do you see this impacting? Because you say you're, you're uh, uh, a program and content and you're dealing from the school and education standpoint. How do you see this impacting young uh, men, um, especially our black boys, in terms of looking up and thinking, if I make it, am I going to, you know, am I going to suffer the same thing or, mm. or am I going to, you know, is someone going to come after me or can it be something where they can look up and say, I can make it too. What, what is the dynamics of that? Because on one hand he made it, but then because of his association or his past, we don't know yet. He's shot down. Is, is there, is there a, 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 um, a fear and a, you know, as aspiration, what do you think young men or young boys should be thinking or are going through uh, as a result of this? I think the challenge of this moment is summed up by his, his clothing brand. It was called the marathon. And mm-hmm. the way in which young men, black boys, Latino boys, anyone in poverty and hard situations takes this moment is really going to be dependent on how we respond. The mm-hmm. 
influential people he had around him. Steph Curry, LeBron James, the influence right. the billionaires, right. not just the athletes, the other rappers, the other people who are on his level, who understand what he stood for, if they pick up the baton and they're willing to be triggered by the death of this great man, we can change this narrative of one from hopelessness to immense possibility. We can take we can multiply the impact of one man and make that a call, just as Malcolm was not a man, he was a movement. But if we right. allow this man's legacy to be something that we look at and we put on a pedestal, then it is much, much harder for us to convince these young men that there is a hope and a purpose. So I think the response to what comes mm-hmm. from that is really on us. What will we do? Exactly. That's very good. good very good point. Before I take a break, uh, let me I'm gonna go back to, to Ryan real quick here. Sterling um, plays Randall on This Is Us, a uh, reoccurring role, and he, he's um, elected to the city council, things like that. Mm-hmm. What does that, what, in, in his character, what he plays as a city council and running for office, and that, how will that or how does that emulate where you see American politics going, going forward? And I know I'm asking you to project how they're going to write his script and how they're going to write him into uh, different areas. But how do you see that just based on how he came out through the campaign and the platforms that he ran on? What do you think or how do you see that correlating with what American politics should look like? Well, it just goes back to what I said at the beginning and also going back to fundamentals. You know, he saw a problem. And the only way to fix that problem is to work with the city government. You know, kids were not safe in their community center. Right. A la Nipsey Hussle. A la Nipsey Hussle. And, you know, and yeah, they are going to be, they are going to come for us. They're going to come for us in all kinds of ways. Character, assassination. Like these kinds of things are going to happen. But I do think that, you know, one thing, <laughs> August Wilson wrote a play called Piano Lesson. And he said mm-hmm. in the play, he basically alludes to the fact that the most dangerous uh, black man in America is a man who's not afraid to die. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah. Shakespeare wrote that you can't, you can't take anything from me except my life. Yeah. Right? And right. if I'm willing to give that up, then I'm Right. There's literally There's nothing, nothing you can, you can take, do. You can, right. nothing you can take yeah. from me. Right. And I think that there, you know, it has to be, when you look at, like I said, which they mentioned Fred Hampton, you know, and not to compare Randall to Fred Hampton because I'm not, right. they're very right. different. <laughs> but I do think that if we continue to think locally, we as black people cannot get, a, get afford to get caught up in all of this, like she said, the craziness, the madness. None of that. In, what we call in D.C. inside the beltway stuff. Inside the beltway stuff. it's everything that's outside that's, that's exactly. really moving the country forward and moving what's going on. Exactly. A friend of mine was in California. Was, this was in L.A. This was in the valley. And not deep in the valley. This was in the valley. And she was moving mm-hmm. her car. And something, there was something, you know, it's crazy in California parking lot. Something right. happened. And um, the guy got out of the car and basically was like, black people are the worst. And she was like, I know, right? And drove away. <laughs> and, but, but, just, but, you know, you started by saying, like, it is now out in the open. Right. It is now out in the open. And out these the kinds open. of things are going to continue to happen. And we have to keep our eyes. Where is the problem? Where is the problem? Is it this hole in, in the floor here? Let's make it safe for the children. 
Okay, now what's the next mm-hmm. problem? And we are going to have to think. We are going to just have to think and act locally. And it will have a global impact. And I hope that that's what, I think that that's what um, this is us is trying to say. Well, good. I want to thank you for joining us. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I am so excited. Yeah, it was a joy. Thank you. And and just get his comment. It's nice to meet you, ladies. I'm going to take a a break, and, uh, and we'll be right back, and we'll get into our national discussion about what's at stake for us locally, socially, globally, economically, politically, <laughs> just in our own community and our hood. We'll be right back. That should be intriguing. Exactly. <laughs> Hands to the heavens, no man, no weapon. Formed against just glorious destiny. And we stand up, shot be on the ground, the camera panned up, king pointed to the mountaintop, and we ran up. One day, when the glory comes, it will be out, it will be out, oh, You're listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics, and your source for the social, economic, and political impact on the African-American community. So join the conversation at 516-590-0143 and share your viewpoint at 516-590-0143. Now, back to your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. If you want to join the discussion, give us a call at 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. I want to welcome my guests back to the show, Rebecca Carruthers, Greg Stewart, and if... uh, uh, Keisha is still with us. Welcome her back to the show as well. I want to thank, of course, Ryan, Michelle, Bethay uh, for joining us tonight. Uh, um, certainly uh, check her out on Empire and watch her on This Is Us with her husband, Sterling K. Brown. Uh, certainly a great contribution to our community uh, and my family. So I want to thank her again uh, for joining us. Um, Rebecca, let me uh, come back to you and 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 talk about uh, this move that we were discussing um, uh, at the at the border. Uh, the idea of 
shutting down the border, the separation, the idea that no one knows how many kids are gone. We've discussed this a number of times on the show, and it's it's been one of those things that just keeps it keeps re uh, what, what's the the term I'm looking at? You know, um, um, resurfacing. Yes, thank you. Resurfacing. <laughs> it's like Groundhog head. Day. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it keeps resurfacing its ugly head back to us. And it seems like we, we – it's one of those things that I don't know. Trump just doesn't understand. He just keeps doing it. When well, that's the point of his administration and his presidency. His point is to distract us, to wear us out, where we're not paying attention that what he's doing with his family is that they're taking a lot of the U.S. Treasury and they're putting it into the Trump organization. They're putting it into their friends' business, and then they're figuring out ways to make sure they're making billions and billions of dollars from the U.S. Treasury once he leaves office. That's what's happening, but he's doing all these all of these crazy things at the border, telling people, telling the press over the weekend, telling his followers at rallies and at Mar-a-Lago that he's going to literally shut down the border. Here's the right. thing. In order to shut down the United States border, you have to talk to the relevant agencies. So far, the relevant agencies have not been at the White House is shutting down the border. Right, Exactly. Right. So you got to get Border Patrol. You have to do everything like that. I mean, just just the 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 idea of shutting down physically shutting down the border um, is is, I mean, going to cause a economic drought for folks. It's crazy. And so him trying to do something like that is just not good policy whatsoever. So Kelly was interesting. One southern port of entry was shut down for about five hours a few months ago. It cost five million dollars and lost wages and lost productivity and lost commerce. So it was basically one million dollars an hour. So say that this guy in the White House decides to shut down the border. Let's just say that he does it for three days. That's at minimum $72 million, but you and I both know if at one port is $1 million an hour. So if he's shutting the entire southern border with all of those ports, that's going to, be, that's going to have a multi-billion dollar impact. And then when we think about the, um, the trade that will be effectively shut. So it's literally not just people who are crossing over and going back and forth throughout their day lawfully. Corporations, it's farmers, you right. know, it's um, manufacturing plants. So I'm curious what the manufacture, the car manufacturing plants in Detroit, in Indiana, in Ohio, and Alabama. I'm curious what those Trump supporters are going to think or what they're going to feel when they get laid off because of this stupid border shutdown. It's nonsense. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's gonna um it's going to be uh, something that's it's gonna be monumental. Greg, let me talk to you because uh clearly um it's something that I'm sure that you support and you like, but looking at it from a business or economic standpoint the reality of it is, is that even if you shut down the ports of entry, you're not going to be able to shut down the border because, again, if your claim is that you need to build a wall because everyone is coming across outside of the ports of entry, how are you going to be able to shut down the border? 
Um, I guess I would make it real simple and easy. I'm ex-military, okay? <laughs> the military, the police, and the law enforcement in this unit in this country are fully capable of shutting down not only this border, but many borders around the world. We have shown that ability. If we want to shut down that southern border, we have the manpower, we have the technological capability to fully shut down that border so that there will only be okay. maybe dozens of people, and I do mean dozens, across that entire 2,000-mile border, maybe a dozen would be able to successfully penetrate, if that many. So then if that's we the case, that strong. Capability, why? So if that's the case, then why don't you guys do that instead of building a wall and costing taxpayer dollars, you know, $20, $50 billion, just do that and, and you know, put everybody down there to sit in the Rio Grande, to sit up in the on the mountains, to sit where they got to sit. Why do you need to build a wall for that? Because we already know the wall uh, doesn't now work. We, uh, now we get up into, oh, well, walls do work. Like I say, being ex-military, around every military installation in the United States is a very large wall. The reason you don't have the manpower that you're requesting is because of cost. That's why you put the physical wall up and you augment it with human with human um, humans. That you know that's standard. Every military base is protected that way. You can't just drive by Andrews okay, so and physically get on it. You're bowling not, any of them. Every uh, military base in the United States. A military and around base around the world. Two thousand miles. Okay. So that's one reason why you're able to do that. A military base doesn't cover 2,000 miles, nor is anyone trying to get into a military base for a job. So that's not going to happen either. So that's why no one's climbing over a military base wall. So if you have the capabilities of shutting down the border, as you say, because you're ex-military and you can do it, and only a dozen people will get through, then do that. Um, Actually, from the Trump supporter standpoint, we're wondering why it hasn't been shut down, while the wall hasn't been under construction. Why basically because a couple of executive orders – oh, no, no, no. There is absolutely nothing stopping President Trump from issuing executive orders, reversing DACA. It was an executive order. There is nothing to do There is no reason. There is no reason why a lot of major, much more draconian actions as far as immigration have not been implemented. And from the Trump supporter standpoint – it's very disappointing that, oh, uh, no, you could have forced the issue a long time ago. Heck, you know, if you, if you really want to get serious, heck, fire um, Nielsen, put Sessions in there at that point in time. Then you're playing hardball, and it would be a totally different application of the way DHS is going about their job, and it would totally change the way that people are approaching the border. It okay. actually would. Well, let me, Keisha, let me come to you because you're, you're new on the show. You're a guest. You're very nice. I don't want to taint you. I don't want you to. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I want you to come back. You to Same come parties. Back. <laughs> come on over. Come on over. I want you to come back in the future. Um, from a a just a a strictly because I'm I'm going to take it from the standpoint that um, you know you're educated. You you deal with fundamentals. You deal with processes. You deal with things that are are in a structural um, a structural balance. So given your professional background, educational background, and, and just the, the process and what you're doing things, help Greg understand <clears throat> that covering 2,000 miles compared to maybe 2,000 feet and dealing with something where, you know, jobs are the, the factor and the force of driving people because of your own country's um, uh, corrupt 
you know, uh, version of, of government and the fact that you're using people as, as human traffic and, and killing and robbing and raping, that the fundamentals of what he's saying just doesn't work. Well, first off, hi, uh, Greg. Before I uh, even attempt to negotiate this somewhat slanted question, um, hi, Keisha. I will simply, hi. I will simply say this: understanding that, as I mentioned, like my postgraduate degrees were all obtained in China, and I spent the last eight years from an international perspective. As an educator who understands the dramatic shift in education, what AI technology is going to do to the landscape of the job market, understanding the intense competition the next generation is going to face in terms of access to higher education, to gainful employment, and just the fact that anyone who wants to enjoy lifestyles where they're pulling in six-figure salaries is likely going to have a significant degree, postdoc, or some sort of um, heavily influential skill set that demands a strong education. All I humbly ask is, is this indeed the best use of our access, of our resources in terms of finances to build a wall when we understand, you know, Game of Thrones reference, winter is coming. And are we really using our resources wisely to invest in a wall when we understand all these things are changing around us and the lifestyles we enjoy are just like the polar ice caps. They're melting. Now we can argue about what's causing the ice to melt, but the truth is the ice is melting right underneath our feet. And if we don't really begin to assess how we want to address America's changing position in the global landscape, there are major deals like the, um, the Silk Road Initiative or the One Belt Road Initiative, like there are major global deals that we have been completely, we've either removed ourselves from or been cut out of since 2016. And I'm not going to point fingers and say it's just one man, but while we're arguing amongst ourselves, the ice is steadily melting underneath our feet. So that's my question. Like we can certainly get lost in the rigmarole of building a wall, but what are we going to tell the generation after us when they're trying to figure out why they don't enjoy the same lifestyles we currently do. And Rebecca, that's a very good point because the truth of the matter is, even if we built the wall, we paid for it, everything was great and gravy and everything else. Um, what Keisha is saying is, is true. We're missing out on the bigger picture of what's happening and where everything's going. And as I always, when we, when we had this debate, it's always the southern border that we're talking about, but that isn't even where the problem is. The problem's in the northern border, the problems with visa overstays um, from places like China and, and Europe and other places. And this is really a racial war rather than a, a pure uh, a war on issues of and national security. Um, but when we do what we do, we do miss out on the reality of how we're going to prepare our kids and our next generation to live and, and uh, actually be able to function. So I'm going to use a cliche here. Right now, the United States is playing checkers while the world is playing chess. We're literally fighting and feuding and building houses of nothingness, and it's foolish, and it doesn't make any sense. Like even if Donald Trump – 
God has $10, $20 million to build a wall. Okay, great. Let's fiat it and say the wall is built. Then he's going to create another stupid controversy that people are going to get caught up in. And to what um, Dr. Sarah Bois was saying is that we're still losing footing with the rest of the world. It's to the point now we're no longer at the table for certain critical discussions on what the future is going to look like in the next 100, 200, and 300 years. The United States is not at the table because this current administration has abdicated the United States' position on the world stage. Instead, we're talking about a stupid wall that will not be built, and even if parts of a wall is built, or if parts of the existing pieces of wall on the southern border is reinforced, it's still not going to do anything. Exactly, and that's my point with, with, with trying to actually rationalize with Greg and not talk from a standpoint of, of just pure politics, but just common sense and sensibility. But let me move to this point, which, um, uh, uh, Greg, you've been very uh, adamant about and, and very vocal about, which is healthcare and the idea that the, the AG, uh, the, the White House has asked the AG to go forward and decide that they're going to eliminate or, or allow uh, the Affordable Care Act to just basically implode and, and collapse because they're going to, uh, the, the state, the, the, the judge in Texas ruled it unconstitutional. Don't you think it's irresponsible and just pure immoral to allow something where millions of people will lose their health care, could lose their lives because of the, the care that they need, to not do anything about it and just say you're going to get better health care, but you haven't taken one step, one stroke, one pin to do anything to improve the health care that you say is so terrible and the health care that continues to allow people to you know, have health care and continues to have people uh, sign up for health care, don't you think it's just purely irresponsible to say that you're going to let it just die and let the people die with it? Aren't we going back to what Sarah Palin says, the death panels? Um, actually, I would say, and I'm going to have to circle back a little bit to even what Akisha said, is like I agree with a lot of what you know she was talking about and kept me tied in here to health care. It comes across – it's going to come across as cost. Is the people that you're talking about for the um, American Care Act when it expires, the largest provider of health care and health insurance are from private employers. People have a job. You work from the federal government, D.C. government, all those places like that. The ACA is not part of the largest it, – it, they are two separate markets. And because of that, the cost of the ACA and the people that it affects, it's a higher cost than it is for everyone that's in the private market. That, ha- that are provided from you're working at the George Washington University or Metro Police Department. That's why their costs are lower. That's why the costs are higher for the ACA. And we're going back in there. And what Keisha was saying about, like we're talking about AI and everything like that. The biggest problem that Trump supporters have with the border is we agree. Artificial intelligence, all these jobs are going to get replaced. Here in the black community, we have a population of high unemployment. They are going, their skills are not going to transfer to a new economy. They're going to have no place to go. An open border brings in a larger number of people that have no place to go, and we're sitting there going, that makes no sense. That's unsustainable. It's unsustainable to have people, okay, an existing group of people that are going to transfer up in the economy and bring in even more that are going to – you're bringing in – we have a, have a bunch of consumers and bringing in more consumers when we need more producers. 
So are you are and that's and, a big and, problem and that I we actually, have. I actually want you to answer my question rather than going back About. to a different question and a different topic and different no, no. subject. I asked you. It's all tied to into the healthcare. It's, it's, and and do it's it all tied to the healthcare. Right. Here's 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 the question I had for you. Isn't it immoral for your president to allow people to get off? It doesn't have anything to do with costs because he is allowing them to fall off the health care roll and then allowing them to essentially not have health care and essentially in patients with diabetes or, or you know, um, insulin, you know, whatever the case is, these people can literally die because, one, they're in these rural communities. They don't have the ability to get out there. They can't do, you know, they can't drive themselves. These are the people that he said he was going to give better health care to, but yet he has not proposed one health care initiative. He hasn't proposed anything to deal with health care, to even provide for health care. And even those people that you talk about coming across the border, and you're talking about our community, African-American community, we're not doing yes. those jobs that those people are coming across the border doing. So I, I, I can appreciate the fact that you want to try and essentially you, your party always tries to make that the subject area. But if we're doing so great, as Trump says, and all these jobs are being produced by him and he's creating all these jobs, then we don't have anything to worry about in terms of unemployment or anything like that because jobs are being created. But the point I'm yeah, making well, is healthcare is dying and people will be dying if he does not put something in place for the healthcare. And I'll add this, this is what you're talking about immoral. The ACA has only been in effect since 2010. So before then, whatever was there, was it immoral then? It's only been in effect for eight years. For We're all older than eight years. During it, was it immoral during all those other presidents that didn't address it? The ACA came in. It's only been in place eight years. When and if it fails, it will go back to what the situation was during the last 200 years or however many for this country. So it's only been in place for eight years. So, Kelly, Kelly, can I jump in here? Sure. So I actually worked on health care reform on the Affordable Care Act. I worked under Congressman John Dingell, who had introduced a bill for universal health care every year since um, he entered, entered into Congress in 1955. And before him, his dad, who had been in Congress since 1929, introduced a bill for a national health care system. One thing that we've noticed in this country, you know, is that we need to figure out ways to make sure that people have access to quality care. Now, Republicans for years have always told Democrats, hey, you need to allow for a market-based solution. That is the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Absolutely. Care Act provides an exchange for private insurers to go into the market and offer up different affordable plans for people such as small business owners as myself. I'm able to go into the market and to buy a plan. The reason why private companies and government um, employees' health plans are cheaper is because of collective bargaining, which, once again, conservatives don't want to do. 
conservatives don't want to do collective bargaining, then the next thing that they say is, oh, no, we need to have a free market solution. We have that with the Affordable Care Act, and now they want to destroy it. The reason why they want to destroy the ACA is because a black man finally did what over 100 years worth of white men were not able to do. We need to call a thing a thing. But what's going to end up happening with Republicans not offering a counterproposal, and they've had since 2010 to offer a counterproposal, they have not. So what's going to happen is the American of uh, the American public is going to demand a single payer system, and I would argue that's actually a good thing for health care and access to health care in the United States. And it's going to make. I it would agree with what you just said. It, 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 I want it on the ballot next year. Health care is going to be on the ballot next year. The American people are going to vote on how we're just going to like do health care. It was in market based. Healthcare was on the ballot in 2018, and we saw that the House was overwhelmingly flipped as a referendum against the um, conservative party. So if you want it on 2020, then great. We'll flip the White House, and we'll flip the Senate. So thank you. We want it on the ballot. Yes. <laughs> I, oh, believe there's no concern on my part for 2020 if healthcare oh, is it. You don't have None. to be concerned. We, we don't want your heart to be troubled. Because we know what the American people want. We believe in representative democracy. My, my question is, if the American people want it, then I come back to the ACA. And it's so like why aren't universal health care. Why aren't Republicans it, it, no, 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 providing a no, counter no. plan the way the American people have asked them? Why aren't Democrats depend? you know, why aren't they putting it in place? The ACA started in Massachusetts. No, no, no. Hold on. Hold on. Hear me out. Hear me out. Governor, Republican Governor Mom, Republican Governor Romney put it in place in Massachusetts. California, oh, the largest economy in the country, is 100% controlled by Democrats. When they had the option to put universal health care on, they punted the ball. If it's so great, why won't the Democrats implement it in, in California? That's our question. We put it in place. The Republicans put it in place in Massachusetts. Yeah, Republicans which is, which actually was the plan. How come the Democrats won't Republicans, put it in place in California? So once again, this is a distraction. They called it Romney. Thousands they called it Romney care. Do it in one state. They don't have Do access to health care. The Republicans in California are not would not implement it. To it. Then what we see what Republicans are doing, they now decided under the Department of Justice that they're no longer going to defend the Affordable Care Act in court which means that they're trying to dismantle it through the court system, which is interesting because the conservative party has always derailed progressives for trying to legislate through the judicial system. Is there so nothing any Republican can do Republicans to stop single payer from being implemented in California? Not one got a policy thing. Through Why is it not in place? Not able to do. Why Greg, single payer not, not in place in California? Not there's not one thing Greg, that. Oh Greg, no! Yes, it is. This Why would you not prove it in California? Then no, expanded nationwide. No, Greg, Why not? Why not? not California. This it's isn't a about big California. enough sample size. Greg, this it's, isn't about California. It's a statistic. Why didn't your president and your Congress and your House do something about it when they had the majority? They had the whole House. They had a supermajority in the House. Why didn't they do something about it? So don't talk about California and try to flip it. Oh, yeah. No, the truth of the matter California is. California vetoed and shot down single payer themselves. The truth and of the matter is. And it's a 100% controlled Democrat state. Used, they won't do it. We used Mitt Romney's plan and made it a national yes. plan, and you guys didn't like it. Period. Point blank. Okay. 
Keisha, but it was started in one you. state, and all the Keisha, bugs were ironed out in one state, then expanded. Greg, you can yeah. do the same thing for single you, payer Greg. in California. Greg, Why won't you do it? You. I'm a mute you, Greg. Okay, we're not talking about California. It's not a distraction. We're talking about what we asked you. Or what Why I asked won't you, you do what you said? Look, why don't you do what you said? Your president said he was going to make health care better. Why didn't he do it? Because he can't do it because he doesn't know anything about health care, let alone anything else for that matter. Okay? So, Keisha, let me go to you because I'm not going to deal with Greg on trying to, you know, distract and diffuse and go somewhere else right? as he does, tries to do with every show we have him on. So, <laughs> they, they said they're going to protect pre-existing conditions, but now they don't give a darn about them. So let me go forward and look at the whole um, – uh, I want to actually go turn to the, the, the other tragic death that we had, which was the young girl in South Carolina. I don't know if you had an opportunity to hear about I it. I am aware. It. Yes, yes. But the 10-year-old child. Right. But the idea that the teacher and mm-hmm. uh, or the school system itself allowed the fight to just continue, and they exactly. stood back and said they are not going to get involved – I mm-hmm. see lawsuit all over this in every form and fashion. But then, mm-hmm. if as, as I remember growing up, the, the school, the teacher, they were responsible yeah. for you while you're on their campus. They were also responsible yeah. for you while you walked home. Okay? So how do they justify allowing this young girl, 10 years old, to get into the fight, and then they send her to the nurse unconscious? Right. I mean, how are they going to justify this, or, or how do you see this playing out? Yeah, there. Well, there's two two things I'd, I'd love to say to that. Um, in the beginning of this accountability, there is no justification. Um, there was a breakdown in that classroom. There was a lack of relationship, a sense of responsibility a sense of ownership for the children in that classroom as to where you had adults under the label of teacher or educator who were not the guardians of these children's lives. Now, all of the reasons that contributed to that breakdown, that's far more than what was in that classroom. All of the policies and things that are in place that stop educators from being as hands-on as we may have expected in that situation, there's a lot of depth to that. What will, what will likely happen, um, there'll be some lawsuits. Uh, they'll more than likely be settled. Uh, they'll be probably, uh, you know, drawn out until they reach a settlement that the school district feels like they can afford. And business will more than likely continue as usual. It'll be talking points for charter schools or whatever agenda is, you know, on um, that district or that local school board, um, you know, game plan on what initiatives they want to push forward. They will use this as momentum. But the tragedy of it, and I can't say it in any other way, is that black children are vulnerable in a lot of education spaces. And the whole lack of these children's well-being have you ever seen such a thing? Even when you have school shootings, you see far more response than what we saw to this. Exactly. And it's my exactly. understanding that this 10-year-old child was a bystander. 
she was not an antagonist or an aggressor in this fight. Really? So she wasn't, because when I was reading it, it was that she was the one that was being bullied, and therefore, mm-hmm. at least that's what her mother tweeted out or somebody tweeted out. This is what bullying looks like. Um, and uh, it was a it was a picture of her in the in the hospital bed with the neck brace on and tubes and everything you know connected to her. This is prior to her her death, uh, right after uh, being airlifted to the to the hospital. But the idea that um, the the teacher didn't step in, if in fact this was mm-hmm. the woman, the young kid who was being bullied, you got the school district in there now, and you have to deal with that situation, and then you have. Um, the, the fact that they didn't protect her after, with the bullying, they didn't protect her in the classroom with the teacher, then you send her to the nurse to ultimately have to be airlifted to a hospital. I mean, just the, the, the like you said, the accountability, there was no accountability at any level from the, from the teacher to the principal to the school superintendent, anywhere. I mean, the, the tragedy and travesty of this is that they failed this young girl um, in every way. They failed this child, absolutely. Like, they not only failed, this is a child we know of, but, again, I have to put on my educator hat. We know that minority children are far more likely to be mislabeled as special needs, far more likely. Like, we consistently fail our children in ways that are unacceptable, but we do it under the guise of education. This was a situation where a child physically died, but there are right. children slowly dying in classrooms due to horrible teachers, lack of resources, well-trained, high-quality teacher implementation, uh, lack right. of access to STEM or actual programming that will make them competitive when they get to middle school and high school. We lock them out of access under the guise of education, but it's, in some ways, it's a replication of what we do in our criminal justice system if you are unfortunate enough to be on the wrong side of this line. We still don't know what is going to be the fallout for all of those rich children who were exposed in these college scams. Right, right. I, I think it goes back to like what Ryan was saying earlier is that, you know, we have to do something to save the children because that is our next generation. That is where we're scheduled and, and, and set to be the majority in 20 years, that majority and what is that majority going to look like for us as African-Americans in this society? And where is it going to allow us to be? Are we still going to be at the bottom of the economic food chain, even though we are a part of the majority of the, the population? And, and how can we stand or how should we allow that to occur um, in this society, we sh- if we're going to be the majority, we should take over just as Mandela did in South Africa, you know, and decided that we are going to be the majority economically, socially, and politically. But it seems like we're not doing that. I think we are taking steps to do it, but it's happening in, I would like to say, revolutionary ways. People like myself, uh, bring it back to Nipsey Hussle, people like who are bold enough to think outside of the box and insert themselves in sections of education where they have the room to really be impactful. I am the director of a um, literacy foundation in terms of uh, literacy NGO 
in terms of programming and content because it gives me the power to inflict or to implement national programs across the U.S. As a classroom teacher, while you are definitely on the front lines, you are severely limited by a lot of things that restrict the way in which you teach, the content in which you have access to, and if that doesn't restrict you, they have to you on your time, and you're truthfully, you're burnt out by the end of the day. So, like, there is a whole ecosystem of resources that we have to put around these education systems, and it's not a simple fix as another charter school or private tutoring. There is a whole reimagination that needs to occur in how we are approaching education. And the truth of the matter is we have no idea what our education system is going to look like in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. The 10-year-old child who passed, we couldn't tell you what her college admission uh, would have looked like or what she would have needed to be to be competitive because we don't know where education is going. But what we do know is that we are not adequately preparing our children who don't meet certain socioeconomic thresholds to be anywhere near viable in terms of competitiveness. Having lived abroad for eight years, I am astounded by the way the international community is preparing the next generation to lead. One of the reasons why I took a job in the U.S. because I was terrified of what was happening for the marginalized children from the backgrounds I came from. Right. And so I thought, sure. okay, well, with my skill sets, let me contribute. But, yeah, it's a very, very real thing, and it's bigger than death. We're, 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 we're not, we're, I'm sorry, and I'll say this and I'll stop. But while we're highlighting the one child who died, I think we're uh, blind to the millions of children that are slowly dying right in front of us every day. All right. All right. And that, that's not the physical death that they're dying from. It's everything. The, it's the, the mental other. death. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. So, Rebecca, let me uh, go to you and, and, and let's start uh, uh, taking apart this Mueller report and the idea that the AG has decided, you know, how it's going to be released. He's going to redact. He's not going to give Congress an unredacted version. Um, and that uh, he's saying that, well, there's no, there, there's no uh, obstruction. And this is coming from the guy who wrote a 19-page unsolicited uh, uh, memo that the Mueller report or the Mueller investigation and that the president could not obstruct justice, even though he plainly spoke it right out of his mouth. Uh, Democrats are now pushing to try to get this. Are they going to overplay their hand in trying to get this and, and, and essentially like turn the American people against them? Or do you think they will be strategic in the policies and how they want to do it? to be able to actually get it and, and be able to use it in a, in, a, uh, in a proper way. So there's two markers in the sand here. So the first thing is releasing a report to the American people. So we do know that it will have to be redacted, especially the tools and um, the different ways that um, the different um, agencies have been conducted their investigation and how they go right. about um, getting information, they'll have uh-huh. to uh, redact some of their methods, right? That's one thing. The, the second marker is whether or not the United States Congress has the right to have access to the unfettered report. So from the aspect of um, the Democrats in the House, for history to look back at the Democrats as actually um, upholding the Constitution, 
The Democrats do have to go to the mat on this. They do have to demand to be able to have access before the before um, the middle of April or before the end of April um, to have access to the Mueller report. Because what we see, what the DOJ is doing, uh, Barr is acting in a purely political um, what purely political motivations here. He's trying to give the White House enough time to craft a narrative and to frame um, the contents of the report. It's purely political. It has nothing to do with our Constitution. It has nothing to do with national um, safety. Um, But to the point of the American people having access to it, um, the American people should have access to it. When we look at the Kenneth Starr report, um, exactly. Every single page of that was uh, provided to the public for public um, consumption. So at exactly. some point, the, even the unfettered um, Mueller report has to become available to the American public. They might wait 10 years or 20 years um, for te- techniques to advance in a way where showing those investigative and truth-gathering um, techniques um, to have evolved, it might take 20 years for the American Republic um, public to see the entire um, contents. But if we're going to preserve democracy, if we want to say that we're still that um, um, shining city on a hill, then then we we have to be responsible and release it um, for viewing for the American Republic. Um, because uh, because otherwise we won't have that full transparency. And once again, with this administration, with all the crazy things that are happening that we're not even aware of yet, the only disaffected, the only um, um, uh, rebuttal to this administration is full transparency. Greg, I know that you think that um, uh, you know everything is fine, everything is dandy, but but. You have to agree, man. I mean, just just being real about it, you have to agree that this whole idea that you're going to hold on to everything and wait two, three months to redact or to set everything up when in less than 48 hours you was able to come out and give us a summary and uh, a four-page summary. Why do you, why is it going to take you that long to redact anything that you need to redact? If in fact you need to redact it, but you were able to come out and 48 hours and give us a summary of what it was. If you can do that in 48 hours, you can certainly redact anything that's of national security in the same amount of time. Um, I guess I would say it's like from a conservative standpoint, that 48 hours time, uh, that 48 hours time frame, we're actually wondering exactly when did Mueller complete his report? We pretty much sure that it wasn't written in 48 hours. They're going, was it a month? Was it six months? When was the time I'm period? I'm talking about so Barr. That's kind of, Barr came out with but, his response oh, in 48 hours. From Mueller. You know, he just he had him write that. You know, that's how he did that. And it's and a quick question. Now, Devin Nunes. No, 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 real quick question. No, 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 you're talking, no, you're talking, no, you're talking about the redacted, you're talking about the, yeah, you're talking about the redacted, the redacted, I guess, report. From Congress, no. Devin Dunes, when he went to the when he went to the when he went to the skiff compartment, he was able to see all the unredacted information. It was about, being produced. Who's, who's what are do, you does, con- it, does Congress, when you're talking about the, un- the redacted report, doesn't Congress no, have the authority to go to a classified area and read point. it there? Won't they have the ability to go in a classified area and read an unredacted copy? They just can't come out. 
That's they just can't leave the secure classified area secure with an unredacted area, area. inside right. the Congress, right. inside the Capitol they, buildings where you can read. The Congress um, will have to go to a secure area, but they will be yes, able to read the unredacted. Buildings, there's several skips. Right. The Capitol, Correct. Several skips. So, the, so the Congress people so, will be able on, to read on, the sir. unredacted one. Great. So Great. what's the problem? Barr hasn't turned yeah, it over to them yet, yeah. and that's the I'm problem. Like, they gave them a deadline of today. Right. You you came up you came up with him. I'm talking about Barr. Attorney General Barr took 48 hours to write a report that says everything is copacetic. I'm asking you, why is it going to take him four months to redact and come back and say everything is copacetic? If he did in 48 hours, he can do it in 48 hours to redact whatever he needs to redact that's of national security interest. But Rebecca already said that with the other agencies that are involved and whose names are in the report, that it has to go to all of them to make sure that it meets no, their criteria for the information they don't markers. want. I said there's two markers. What? There's releasing the report to the public, and then there's releasing mm-hmm. the report to the Congress. The Congress has the right to view it unfettered, meaning the full report, Congress has the right to view it. Congress set a Be- deadline. Behind the secure firewall. That he has not met. So at this point, what's going to happen? They actually don't need the Congress firewall. is going yeah. to subpoena. Yeah. Once Congress subpoenas and Barr indicates that he's not going to listen to the subpoena, it's going to head to a district court. From that district court, it's going to be referred to the D.C. Circuit. That D.C. Circuit is going to tell Barr, you have to let Congress view this report. That's what's going to happen. So why are we doing all this? There's legal precedent saying that Congress has the right to, to view and review this report. So why are and Ken Starr has already done it. Right. And Ken Starr has already done it. There's no reason to, to you know, be concerned about grand jury or, or national security or anything else when Ken Starr released his report. And two different two Congress different crimes. One was a sex crime. One was as like that I was illegally spied upon, or it, that that's um, kind of the accusation. It so it's two time, it's two different crime. crimes. Actually, <laughs> actually, it was, it was not actually about crime, white so. water. And it was about Whitewater, and it was about the death, and it was about uh, corruption, and everything that this is about. It was about the same thing. So let me let me do this. Let me do this because you, you're not going to answer the question. I'm, I'm going to ask uh, Keisha as our first time guest um, tonight. What's at stake for African Americans moving forward, Keisha? Hope. Keisha. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. What's at, yeah. What's at hope for African Americans moving forward? Honestly, hope. It's a very oh, simple, simple answer. Hope. That's it's it. very easy to be discouraged. Um, I mean, if we look at the sum total of everything we discussed in the context of this conversation and we put it in the perspective of a class of people that have been consistently overlooked and marginalized, it's very difficult to convince the, the upcoming generation to maintain hope when we're consistently showing them that that narrative is being, um, I can't think of a proper word that really describes how I feel that I could say in the context of this podcast. Um, but it's, we're consistently seeing, we're consistently being disappointed by the outcome and the people right. we elect or the people we look to, to uphold a better standard, we're consistently coming up short. So, right. When the young people did the March for Our Lives and we saw them pull together and rally to try and change gun laws, we saw how 
that was just completely overlooked. And in the same breath, you see New Zealand pass gun laws and have them implemented within weeks. How do we how do we maintain hope like that? That is what I think is really at risk on a lot of levels in a lot of different contexts. All right, Gregory, what's at stake? Uh, what's at stake is hopefully selfishness on the part of the African American community that we develop a little bit more of it. Um, what's the saying? Put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you put it on the child or anybody adjacent to you. And I'd like to see the African American community start taking care of itself a whole lot more before looking out for others. All right. Rebecca, what's at stake for us? So I think what's at stake is that we're going to be so distracted that we're not going to do the things that we need to do to make sure that our community can still exist. Because we're at a critical moment in history where, you know, we're not going to exist economically. We're not going to exist educationally. We're not going to exist politically if we don't figure out how do we strengthen our own communities? So I, I kind of agree with Greg a little bit that the black community has to be selfish. Both Greg and I disagree on a different approach to it, but we really need to turn inward and we need to figure out how do we community build our communities? How do we strengthen our communities? And to piggyback off of what Keisha said, and then how do we re- re- restore hope, especially for this generation that's coming up now? How do we show them what it looks like to live in a functional black community, a functional, healthy black community? I think that's what's at stake. Right. I'm going to I'm going to do something I don't typically do. It's unusual because usually when I ask what's at stake, uh, we are. But uh, um, I I just got my uh, uh, call in from Trey Chaney. Uh, Trey Chaney is a a American actor and he's appeared in HBO Wire uh, as Poot Carr. Uh, which has become a very successful uh, acting role. He's also in the Saints and Sinners as, as Kendrick, and uh, he began his entertainment career as a dancer and, and uh, winning competitions at the Apollo Theater. Now he has also done many video, uh, music videos uh, and uh, is promoting and producing his own TV show um, on uh, BET, uh, as well as uh, appearing in America's Most Wanted, uh, playing a fugitive and that I want to welcome to the show Trey Cheney. Trey, what's going on, my brother? Hey, what's up, family? How are you, man? It's good to be on. Good, good, good. I'm glad you're making time for us. Um, real quick, in the last few minutes that we have, we were talking about Nipsey earlier today. Uh, go ahead and give us uh, a few words about that and, and how you're feeling about that and what you're doing. And then talk to me about your hope uh, thing for the kids that you're trying to do. Yeah, man. Um, first and foremost, man, I just want to say, uh, you know, rest in peace to Nipsey Hussle. And um, my prayers go out, you know, to his entire family. My prayers are with Lauren London and, and you know, Nipsey's kids and, like I said, his whole entire family. And, you know, it, it's a lot of a lot of um, attention is being drawn in the news to, you know, this horrific situation that happened to him. And it's a lot of different speculations about conspiracy theories, um, you know, gang violence and and different things of that nature. And um, it all boils down to this is another African-American 33-year-old man that not only was he an incredible rapper, but every time he spoke on interviews, he spoke a lot about ownership. He spoke a lot about um, 
building up his community. Um, he gave out a whole bunch of jobs and, and you know, just having that store in the neighborhood where he grew up, where he may have been involved in a whole bunch of different things in his past to turn around and then to work so hard for everything that he's built and to just get gunned down that way. It's really, it's really a a hurtful feeling. Um, My thing is, man, it's, it's, it's time to definitely get a grip on our communities. It's time to get a grip as black men. It's, It's time to really like step outside of ourselves and, and really look at what's going on in these communities today and anything that we can do to uplift and just continue to be positive and, and really strengthen, you know, our people, man, just is, is, is definitely needed. It's definitely needed. And I'm just, I'm somebody who's, you know, who's in this industry and um, I never met Nipsey up close and personal, but I remember uh, one time where he followed me on Twitter because I'm going to be honest, I tell everybody this, if it wasn't for, you know, some of his past interviews and his latest album, Victory Lap, which he was nominated for a Grammy for, I wouldn't have adopted that formula of how I put out my music and and incorporate merchandise to it. So not only, like I said, was he an an incredible artist, but he was was a teacher, you know, he he was a leader, he was somebody that we could all look up to, and it's just this senseless gun violence and this and this killing and it just it just definitely needs to stop. And like I said, man, I'm here to, you know, just shed some light on it. And like I said, we can't do nothing at this time but pray. And um and pray for our country and where where we're right. at in, in, in America. It's just it's 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 heartbreaking. And like I said, man, it, it's just a whole bunch of Now let me ask you this break because you're down and real quick, because you're down in Atlanta, you, you know, Stacey yeah. Abrams is running and the, the atmosphere was high. It was hopeful. Have African-Americans lost hope in, 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 um, in Georgia, in Atlanta, in rec and trying to push forward a black agenda and making sure that African-Americans are uplifted like in the same manner that Nipsey was trying to do for uh, South LA and, and making sure that the kids and, and we understood what it took to, to, you know, create legacy and create opportunity for ourselves. Um, I don't, I don't think uh, we, we've lost, we've lost hope because like I said, you still have some, some powerful leadership, and leaders out here, man, is is definitely doing a whole bunch of different things in the community. And some of these individuals are people that you don't even that, that's not necessarily in the public side, you know. And and, and that's one thing that I appreciate. I mean, I work with a with a lot of you know just different individuals, man, in in the community. This this just always trying to uplift the kids, always. Um, re- being real, you know, big on education and and just whatever type of whatever type of circumstances that we as adults have been through in our lives, it's always a positive, powerful message to uplift the community to to possibly not make those same mistakes and just stay on that path to um, you know, positivity and, and, and focus on education and, and just really just building up. So I, I I definitely can say that I don't think everyone I can't speak for everyone, but I know you know, 
certain individuals, man, I, I know a lot of the hope is is not lost, and I am, and we still all in this fight and in this race together. Um, it's just, it just relates me back to uh, Nipsey, Huff, Nipsey Hussle saying that, that everything is a marathon. It's definitely not a sprint, and it's definitely more work and always more work needed to do. Exactly. So talk to me real briefly about um, hope that you're doing for the, for the kids and, and what a uh, hero, hero, and what hero stands for and what you're trying to do for, for young people and, and touch on your, your dad's um, uh, program as well. Cause you, you and I, you know, that's how we connected me being a single father yeah. and your dad thing. Um, briefly uh, mention that as well. When you talk about hero. Okay. So I have um, a program for schools, all ages, all grades worldwide that I, um, I actually kicked off in uh, Forestville, Maryland, because I'm a Prince George's County native, along with, you know, Washington, D.C. And it's called Be a Hero. And, you know, hero stands for honorable, educated, resilient, and observant. And what it is is me coming inside of these schools and sharing my experience of how I grew up in Forestville, Maryland, um, how I got on The Wire, how The Wire was my first uh, television gig as an actor and my first audition ever. But in between that, it was a couple of trials and tribulations that I had to go through as well as overcome. And, you know, being once, you know, their age in elementary school and middle school and, and high school being bullied and not um, wanting to read or, you know, focus on getting a, a great education, how I had to turn my life around when something unfortunate, you know, happened in my life with a good friend of mine who was murdered. And um, I, I shared this message with the young people, how they can be their own hero and they could be a hero for somebody else by putting education first and understanding that education is the key to success. And I put out, you know, a, a motivational hip hop EP on um, iTunes title on Spotify called The Curriculum, and it focuses on, you know, young people reading 30 minutes a day. I got a record on there called Radical Readers. I got, also got a record. In all of these records, they have videos to them. So we got Radical Readers. We have this record called Attendance that focuses on young people having perfect attendance. And, of course, the, the one that really gets everybody is Mike Bully, and that's trying to put it into bullying. So um, with that, you know, I also incorporate my personal and my real life experiences. I'm a, you know, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I've been married going on 15 years. I have a son and I have a daughter. And, um, you know, just the responsibility of men stepping up as fathers, I wanted to also incorporate, you know, if the fathers are heavily involved in their kids' education, it could, it could definitely make a difference in their kids' lives, you know, and, um, the whole Dedicated Father movement was done because I did a record called Dedicated Father that featured my grandfather, rest in peace to him, my grandfather, my dad, my son, along with myself to showcase four generations. And, um, you know, this is another hip-hop positive video that really caught the attention of BET, MTV, Revolt. And um, it's, it's, just, it's just traveling. And I got a T-shirt line that I started called Dedicated Father and dedicated mother, and I also have another one called God First, which is um, all available on TraceCurriculum.com. And it's just, you know, me trying to, you know, just extend my hand, man, and put these positive messages out and, and always, you know, have a voice, since I do have the voice and the platform of some of these major television shows that I appeared on. I'm like, 
and I'm I'm ready to just use my voice as as somebody that's um, positive and productive in the communities and share my messages. And I always say, if I could just touch one person, you know, that 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 makes me know that, you know, I'm doing my job. Well, I want to thank you, my brother, for joining us tonight. I want to uh, give you the same question I give to all my guests that come on the show. And I always ask, what's at stake for us as African-Americans? Uh, what's at stake for us, in, in your opinion, in this, in this country, in this world, um, you know, in, 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 in this next generation that we're dealing with? What's, what's at stake for us? Um, what's at stake for us for me, man, is, is we have to change the paradigm. We, we, we have to change the paradigm, and we have to focus on having mind over matter. All of everything is a thought process, and we all have choices. If we can continue to follow the positive guidelines of making the right choices in everything that we do, we can change some of the negativity that's going on in this country to peace. All right. I want to thank my guest tonight uh, for joining us. Uh, Greg, you wanted to say something? Oh, no, I said amen. Yeah, that's a very well oh, okay. All right. Thank you. I want to thank, thank my guest, Greg Stewart, Rebecca Carruthers, uh, Trey Cheney, uh, Miss Ryan Michelle Bethay, and, uh, of course, Keisha. Um, and I'm going to try to pronounce your last name again, Keisha. It is uh, Sarah, Sarah Boo? Sarah Bob. Terrebois. Terrebois. Okay. Terrebois. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Dr. I put Terrebois. up with an hour you just killing my name. Yes. I know, right? I, but you know what? It's, it's, it's a love, and I appreciate you allowing me to kill Agreed. it. Agree. 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 In solidarity. In solidarity. Right, and it three days, so it's all good. Terrebois. <laughs> I got it down thank now. You. So I want to thank my guest tonight thank for joining you. us. And of course, always, uh, Follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, Six Today. Of course, subscribe to our, our latest edition of Black Politics Today magazine at our website at Black Politics Today. Uh, we will be at the Annapolis State Capitol next week, August 13th. Uh, excuse me, August 8th. We'll be at the Annapolis State Capitol talking to the state April. legislators about what they're doing. Then uh, April. I said August, didn't I? Yes. 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 April 8th. Uh, next week, and then on April fifteenth, next day, we'll be at George Washington University with the Black Lives Matter Coalition, as well as the students, the the um, uh, Black Student Union there. And uh, who knows, we may be coming to you next uh, within the uh, uh, the you know fifty cities or fifty states uh, across the country. If you if you want us to come, just call us and let us know. And if we got to fly, you got to pay. But other than that, we'll be right there. <laughs> we can get there. <laughs> I like again. Of course, if it's social, economic, or political, it's Black Politics Today. And uh, uh, certainly uh, check out Trey and uh, his work, uh, Che Cheney, Che Cheney, Che Cheney, Trey Cheney. Man, you guys are killing me. I'm, I'm just messing up yeah. everybody's name. <laughs> Trey Cheney. And uh, certainly watch him on Saints and Sinners. Uh, and check out uh, all his work, get his, get his music and get uh, uh, his shirts. And we're going to be collaborating, Trey. We're going to get on uh, the, the Dedicated Fathers and, and My Father's Love campaign and make sure we can go out there and, yeah. and do something with kids and, and work something I'm, out. I'm ready for that, man. I'm ready for that. I'm definitely ready to make that happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, again. Mm-hmm. Uh, enjoy okay. the rest of your night and week. And uh, praise God for you all. And uh, stay safe out there. <laughs>
Until next week, if it's social, economic, or political, it's Black Politics Today. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today.